Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Well, this afternoon we are going back to that reading from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 11. It would be enormous uh, help to me if you had that available to you. Is there a space on the back of the bulletin for people who want to make notes? Is that... Uh, yep, so if you've got that, I, I guess that's only useful if you've got a pen as well. So uh, if you've got a pen and got the bulletin, if you can open back to Luke chapter 11 uh, for that reading from verse 14. Chronological snobbery. Well, that was a term first coined by C.S. Lewis in his autobiographical book, Surprised by Joy. Uh, it was a term that he, he used when he was being challenged over his atheist beliefs. And it was uh, a term that described to him his view and attitudes towards those who had come before. Not only immediately before, but across the centuries, looking back across history. Chronological snobbery basically means that we're all at risk of being snobs. It's the view that the thinking, art or science of an earlier time is inherently inferior because it's older. We tend to think that people of earlier periods were less intelligent. Now, it is true, isn't it, that we've progressed in various ways. Um, technology uh, is a great thing, or maybe it's a double-edged sword, having just had a, a WhatsApp video call try and come through as I was in the middle of saying uh, one of the prayers just uh, a few moments ago. Um, but it, it, it's great because it means I can uh, have my sermon on a, on a tablet. And being from England, many, uh, it's not that many years ago, Uh, When I uh, would have come across the Atlantic, that would have been largely it, other than the odd letter backwards and forwards. I'm very grateful for video technology that allows me to see and speak to my family and friends back in the UK. So it's a good thing, even if we sometimes wonder about it. I I love having uh, encyclopedic knowledge available uh, in my pocket almost everywhere I go. And likewise, medicine, we've made great uh, strides there, haven't we? Sometimes in those sort of slightly romantic moments, we imagine, is there a time when we would have preferred to have lived? You know, what what era would you have liked to have lived in? But truth be told, I'm very grateful to be alive today because with all the medicine, with all the things that we have available to us, uh, we are so much more better cared for and in better health than those who've gone before. I wonder whether some of you mightn't have actually been here if it wasn't for the medicine uh, that we have available. So there's a lot to be thankful for. But at the risk of chronological snobbery is because, because we think we've advanced in certain ways that we immediately believe that people of earlier periods were less intelligent, even perhaps stupid. Well, why do I tell you about that. Why do I mention chronological snobbery? I can tell I just quite like saying the phrase, but there has to be a better reason for saying it than that. 
Well, I think it's because there is a danger of doing that, of, of having that sort of snobbery when we read Luke 11. See, the whole mention of demons puts us at, uh, puts us at risk of chronological snobbery. Uh, certainly my experience when I've led courses uh, for those who aren't Christians, when they're exploring the Christian faith, when I take people through a gospel, they see mentions of demons and, and just sort of, just seem to think that... Um, those people back then in the Bible were just a little bit backwards. And then we're confronted with likes of verse 14 of Luke 11. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out of him, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. You see, we, we could read that and end up thinking something like this. Well, the ancients didn't understand about mental illnesses and physical sicknesses. And, and so look at them. They've concluded that the person was possessed by a demon. That's what we mean by chronological snobbery. It's patronising and it gives very little credit to people in the ancient world because they were able to make a distinction. Not every sickness you read in the Bible was blamed on possession. If you go through the Gospels, you will see that those in the ancient world were well able to testify uh, uh, to and uh, to understand why, what, what's caused various things, and they had an ability to interpret between the sources of illness. However, they did realise that spiritual possession could lead to physical symptoms. Now, admittedly, we don't find demons in such obvious frequency today. That doesn't mean that Satan has gone away or given up, even if he is ultimately defeated. It simply means that his approach is more subtle. I think uh, he can work far more freely when we don't notice him there. But it's always struck me that the prominence of demons is what you might expect when Jesus shows up. Let me, let me explain that uh, to you. When the Son of God takes on flesh and walks around on the earth, bringing in the kingdom of God, it's not a surprise to me that the one would who would oppose him is also more visible. We shouldn't be surprised that Satan and his age agents are more obviously in, uh, in, in evidence when Jesus is on the earth. The main point, I think, that Luke, ele uh, that, that Luke wants us to, to take away from this story in Luke 11 is that we are all involved in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle and on our own we cannot win. In fact, Satan has imprisoned us and our only hope if we're to break free from that slavery, is with Jesus. Only Jesus is powerful enough to defeat Satan. Now, we, we don't think or talk about our lives or the coming of Christ in, in terms of spiritual warfare, but it doesn't make it any less true for that. So please, avoid snobbery. Avoid just thinking of these poor backward people in Luke 11. And let's turn rather to this fascinating account. Let me read verses 14 to 16. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. 
When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marvelled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. It is a quite extraordinary miracle that Jesus has performed. Here is a man who is so affected by a demon that he's been mute. He's been made mute, perhaps for, for most of his life. And simply by speaking a word, Jesus performs an exorcism, freeing the man from the bondage and enabling him to speak. It's an impressive sight, and the crowd certainly thinks so. I'm not surprised that they marvelled. I rather fancy that word marvelled is, is, is perhaps masking the great sense of surprise and wonder that there is. I, I understand the word gobsmacked is one that you understand. I think that describes them perfectly, this crowd. They're gobsmacked, they're marvelled, they're extraordinarily bowled over by what it is that Jesus has done. Just how do you explain this? They'd never seen anything like it and probably won't see anything like it again. And notice as you go, we go through that no one denies what has happened. <coughs> what they can't do is to agree as to why Jesus can do what he does. So in addition to the crowd that has marvelled, there are two other groups in the onlookers who are watching what Jesus is doing on that day. There are those who decide that Jesus is from Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And then there are those who see what Jesus does and ask for a sign from heaven. They want to confirm what Jesus has actually done is a sign, uh, it is a sign from heaven, that it is God's work. And to each of these two groups, Jesus then turns to address, to address them. So that first group, Jesus deals with them by way of an argument. And with the second, there is quite a strong warning. The first group's accusation is startling, isn't it? He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They're effectively accusing Jesus of being on the payroll of Satan, to be taking instruction from the prince of darkness himself. That is quite something to accuse Jesus of. Jesus' argument with them is to say that such an argument doesn't make any sense. The first thing Jesus says is, what you are saying is utterly irrational. Look down at verse 17. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. A house divided against itself falls. You don't need me to tell you that. That's an an obvious point. A house divided against itself falls. It might survive a generation or two. But the moment members of a family, a household, 
are starting warring against one another, that household will fall. And likewise, civil war is not a recipe for success. Both of our nations have experienced civil war at various points. It's not been a good thing. It's irrational, says Jesus. The idea that I'm driving out, that I'm actually an agent for Beelzebub, driving out demons, that makes no sense. That's completely irrational. And then he says it's completely inconsistent what you are saying. In verse 19, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your own sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. If you're accusing me of doing it by Beelzebub, what about them over there? Those who you apparently like and approve of. Those other exorcists, what would they make of being told that they're the devil? Or are you just saying that that applies to me only, says Jesus? In which case, they are being wholly inconsistent in what they are saying. You see, the big point that Jesus uh, is wanting us to hear as he addresses this particular group is the accusation that they make doesn't stand up to scrutiny. The argument just doesn't work. And he goes on to explain his own interpretation of what's happened. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Could what Jesus has done actually be a sign that the kingdom of God has finally come? Now that phrase, the finger of God, is a slightly unusual phrase. It appears back in the book of Exodus. If you wanted to follow up the reading later, Exodus chapter 8 verse 19. Let me Read uh, though from verse 18. So the context here is the plagues are going on. If you remember the plagues of Egypt, the fourth plague is happening. And um, uh, up until this point, all the earlier plagues, the magicians in Egypt have been able to reproduce. We come to this fourth plague, a plague of gnats. And uh, we read this in Exodus 8 from verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. For Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. See, even though the magicians had been able to form some of the earlier plagues, they recognise that this plague of gnats is different. They recognise that what is happening in Egypt is as a result of the finger of God, God's action in the land. Because only God could perform a miracle such as this. But despite that... Despite that acknowledgement, despite that uh, acknowledgement that God is at work, Pharaoh is left unmoved. And tragically, there's something similar here in Luke 11. The finger of God is seen again. The work of God is to be seen. And those who would accuse Jesus have hardened their hearts 
So they refuse to see what it is Jesus is doing and by whose power and authority uh, he does them. And as if to uh, drive home the point, Jesus likens his actions to that of a strong man. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is like that stronger man in that little uh, story. A liberator who comes to set his people free. People are being held captive by Satan and sin. And when Jesus, who is stronger than he, comes into the world, Jesus strips Satan of his weaponry and distributes the spoils of war. He gives his people freedom and draws them, as he does that, into the kingdom of God. And so the conclusion Jesus reaches is this. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're either on the side of the strong man or you're on the side of the stronger still man. You're either with Satan or you're with Jesus. And that leaves us with a stark choice when it comes to Christ. You're either with him or against him. You can either do God's work of gathering the pe- his people together or you can do the devil's work of scattering them away from the kingdom of God. There is no neutrality in that spiritual battle, the spiritual battle in which we're all engaged. There is no, if I can put it like this, there's no spiritual equivalent of Switzerland. Famously, of course, tried to stay neutral right throughout World War II. When confronted with Jesus, you can't stand on the sidelines as a passive spectator because when you're confronted with the person of Jesus, it's make your mind up time. Are you going to join him and join his liberation army? Are you going to stand in his way and engage in Satan's taunt and calling good things evil to deny the work of the finger of God? Which is what... This group that Jesus addresses are doing. So that's the first group. The group that would see the work of God and attribute it to the work of Satan. But the second group, there are those who want to see a further sign from Jesus. And he gives them a warning. Now, I don't know whether it strikes you. It strikes me there is some irony here. They've just seen Jesus perform this exorcism, this great miracle of restoring the mute man so that he is at last free and able to speak. And they say, we want a sign. They're missing the point. And to them, Jesus tells them a little parable, uh, the the, the mini parable, as it were, of an unclean spirit leaving and then returning. That's in verses 24 to 26. And can I just say, as as we read this, Jesus is not talking about his own, the, the, the mute man that he has healed here, but rather he's describing the condition of those who request a sign. 
I don't think the story as Jesus tells us is particularly uh, difficult for us to get our mind around it. It's not hard for us to grasp what Jesus is saying. What is more difficult is to understand perhaps the point that Jesus is, is uh, supposing, uh, intending for us to learn. The parable is a warning to those who are all about experiencing a sign of God, who are all about wanting to experience a sign of God. They're like the ones that, who have a house swept and put in order. And then they find in that experience, they find that experience, that sign that they receive, something merely fleeting and passing. And then they're opened up to renewed and greater satanic attack. You see, the problem is in asking for a sign, they're asking for something that is temporary. What Jesus has done in the life of the mute man is substantial and lasting. The work he has done is about bringing in the kingdom of God. Those who want a sign are like those who want a magician's trick. A trick that wows in the moment, but whose moment passes. A sign might convince you briefly like having a house swept and put in order. But you open yourself up to greater spiritual enslavement and hardness of heart when that moment passes. This coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry is a permanent achievement. Why do you want a sign? Why do you want something that is only temporary and momentary? Why do you want something where the value is only limited? What I bring, says Jesus, is lasting. The exorcism is far more than just a sign. It is the breaking in of the kingdom of God. The finger of God has been at work. What Jesus does is altogether more permanent. He puts right what is wrong, restoring what the devil would distort and ruin. We need to see the work of God for what it is. So there are the various responses that Jesus is dealing with. Those who attribute Jesus' work to the devil... And those who demand a sign when they've already had something far more substantial than that. And Jesus won't engage or entertain either response. We approach Jesus as he is and as he has revealed himself. And Jesus isn't um, like some children's modelling clay, some Play-Doh or something like that, where we can mould him to make him as we want him to be. He is who he is, and we need to see Jesus for who he is and as he is. We need to see him clearly and honestly. So what is the right response? I think that comes at the very end of the section we're looking at. And it comes in response to a woman who calls out from the crowd. Verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised a voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. 
The woman is saying in effect, I wish I had a son like you in my family. But proximity to Christ is no substitute for obeying the words of Christ. So what is the right response? What is God looking for? The words of Jesus in reply tell us, if we're to see Jesus clearly, we need to do as he says. Verse 28, Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's the response Jesus is looking for. The finger of God has been seen and the kingdom of God has come. So will you trust the kingdom's king? Will you trust him? Will you see him clearly? Because that's what he calls us to do as we strive to obey his word. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for this uh, great miracle that Jesus performs. Thank you that he is able to make a demon-possessed mute man free and able to speak. Help us to see in that deed who Jesus really is. Help us to behold him as he is. And help us to respond as he would have us. Grant us the grace as we see the work of the finger of God at work to hear and obey the word of God. So Father, help us, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the support the show link under the contact us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.